Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Michelle Strahilovitz. Michelle is currently a marketing professor at St. Mary's College of California. Her research focuses on how emotions affect decision-making in a variety of contexts. In addition to being a wonderful researcher, Michelle is an amazing teacher in the classroom. She has won teaching awards from three different universities. For today's podcast, she is going to share with us her journey on teaching her favorite course, The Science of Happiness and Well-Being. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, so today we are actually going to talk about a class you teach on the science of happiness and well-being. Well, on this podcast, we don't normally discuss that often, but given that education is such an integral part of academia, I think this topic should be of interest to many people. And also because of the topic, happiness and well-being is a state that everybody is kind of like aiming to be. So. Right. I wonder if you can start by introducing to our listener a little bit about this class. What's this class about? So this class is about two things. One is, as academics, of course, we comb the literature and we look at all the research that's been done related to happiness and well-being. And we go over the research that I think is going to be most relevant to the students. But it's really important to note most of those students who take the class, it's an elective for anyone who's an undergraduate right now at the university. So the students taking the class are primarily primarily not psychology majors. They're not going to be necessarily doing academic research or practitioners of trying to help others. So most of them take it with their own happiness and well-being in mind. So while we review the research about what works in general on most people, um, we also have them constantly doing exercises. For every study I talk about, I give them homework where they apply it their own life. And then they write about how it affects their happiness and well-being. Mm-hmm. And they register that. And the idea is at the end, they'll not only know about the research on happiness and well-being that we cover in the semester, but they will have done their own happiness hacking or all, all sorts of terms like me search, like doing research about yourself um, and, and sort of discover not just what works for most people, but what works best for them. And so I think what's nice about it is it's a mix of studying the research, but also studying themselves individually. And of course, we share constantly, both online and in person, uh, what we're getting out of each task and the effect it's having on us, each of the strategies or tools. And so they also learn from each other on what works and doesn't work. And often that inspires them to try something again if it didn't have an effect on them. So it's a little bit of self and you know self-reflection an application to the self and a little bit of a review of the research that we're all interested in as um, academics who are interested in psychology. I see. I see. So I know you mentioned early on in our email conversation that this is not necessarily your research area per se. So I wonder if you can say something about the origins of this class. Like, how did you discover your interest in this specific topics? And what kind of was the process of putting things together? Because it sounds really wonderful that have something that can kind of tap into both the scientific knowledge as well as something that can touch on like people's daily life. 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually a couple things going on. And I'll say one contributor was my own research, which wasn't specifically on happiness and well-being. But I've done some research on altruism and happier people are more giving and giving lead to more happiness. So it's not completely unrelated to my prior research. And I most recently have been involved uh, with research uh, co-author Joe Harvey looking at addiction to day trading and people who trade stocks too often. And we wanted to dig a little deeper into what are the drivers of these people who trade frequently, which, by the way, is bad for your wealth. Lots of researchers have shown frequent trading leads to weaker performance financially. But I wanted to get a sense of, yeah, so don't don't. (laughs) Buy index funds, hold them. That's the advice. Uh, if okay. You can't, if you can't <laughs> stand the risk, then don't don't have all all your money in stocks. That's basically mm-hmm. uh, for those of us who are not professional. However, um, what we discovered was it wasn't that the the people who were investing more often or trading more often, not investing, trading more often, frequent traders were unaware that this had, on average, a negative effect on people's performance as investors. It was also that some things were driving them. In fact, it wasn't lack of knowledge at all. Lack of knowledge was pretty much unrelated to whether they traded frequently or not. It was their emotional state. So the more often they traded also, the more often, and this is correlation, not causation, but Mm -hmm. those people who traded more often were angry more often, sad more often, depressed more often, felt Mm -hmm. isolated more often, felt lonely more often. Um, they felt happy less often, they felt relaxed less often, they felt attacked more often. So there were all these emotional drivers that seemed to be correlated with this behavior that's bad for their finances and possibly bad for their emotional state as well. And that made me realize, you know, happiness and well-being isn't just this little area in research. So much of what we study, be it altruism or day trading, also gets affected by and has an effect on our happiness and well-being. So that's sort of how my research tied into it, and that I wasn't just looking at happiness and well-being as a main focus. However, I found that happiness and well-being ended up being both affected by and having an influence on the phenomena that I was interested in, a wide range of things related to consumer behavior. So that's Mm -hmm. one area. But the other thing, and I have to be honest, um, I decided I wanted to teach this class when the pandemic lockdown started. And that was for two reasons, Mm -hmm. one of them a little bit altruistic and one of them a little bit selfish. Uh So part of it was suddenly I had this class that loved getting together and we had this wonderful maskless together life. And like so many professors and so many students all over the world, suddenly we were remote. And suddenly there were all sorts of restrictions on where we could go, not just in terms of how we taught and how we had classes, But what we could do, where we could go, who we could see, how we could see them, everything shut down. A lot of my sources of happiness and well-being were closed. And that's true for everyone, people all over the world. It's not just an American phenomena. And it was affecting my well-being. And my students were sharing, students seemed very well balanced and happy and were talking to me after class, would like stay after class to say, yeah, you know, I'm really depressed and I'm having problems focusing and this never happened to me before. And some mm-hmm. of the students who were struggling before were struggling more. Mm-hmm. This isn't news, right? But a lot of people who had had happiness, well-being problems, lack of, you know, stress, anxiety, depression, definitely went up. And I myself, who am generally a happy person, 
found myself not with bouts of depression, but definitely bouts of sadness <laughs> and lack of happiness because so many things, things were suddenly not a thing I could do uh, with mm-hmm. none of us, right? It's not just me. And so I became interested in what I could do for myself and what I could do for my students. To be honest, I taught it partially because my research is relevant to well-being and happiness, even if it's not directly about it, partially because there was such a need, so obvious for my students more than ever before, although we could always use more happiness and well-being, even pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. There was a need in my students. And then I myself was realizing some of what I was doing to be happy and well was no longer in my available toolkit because of the COVID shutdown, because everything that was closed down for all of us. Mm-hmm. And I needed new tools as well. So, you know, of course, there's nothing motivates you more to learn something than the fact that you have a classroom of students who are expecting you to teach it, or I wouldn't be able to tell them, and this worked for me too. So this this class that you taught the entire class, like over Zoom, everything was done virtually? Yes, we ended up doing it all online, which is its own challenge, because I think we'd all be happier in person. Uh, but it was a mix of the fact that we weren't, that there were so many constraints for in person, right? We had to do social distancing, we had to wear masks, and the students weren't super excited about that. And also, a lot of the students were going home because it's a one month intensive for four days a week, three hours a day. Uh, for four weeks, and a lot of students wanted to go home. So this gave them the option to go home or go on vacation, and they could still take the class. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't quite as fun as I think as had we gotten to know each other in person, but a lot of those students ended up meeting each other and me when we came back to campus after the course. And that was kind of cool because we felt like we knew each other quite well because mm-hmm. you share a lot more in a happiness class than you do in a consumer behavior class or a oh, yeah, marketing strategy class. <laughs> Certainly. Um, So it was kind of this community that had been virtual friends for a a very intensive four weeks and then got a chance, many of them, to meet in person. And that was pretty great, too. Mm -hmm. I want to say something about, like, in the class, like, what are some techniques that are kind of can help, for example, just the listeners listening to this episode right now, they can just pick up and practice. Like, are there kind of the secret ingredient to like a happy and fulfilling life? So, so the answer is yes and yes and no. So, <laughs> so the secret part is a no, because if you look at the happiness well-being classes that are taught in the articles, and there's lots of sources for this coming out of Stanford and many other universities, um, a lot of it is just kind of known, but, but often we read it. And if we are not forced to apply it because we're accountable to like list it out loud or put it on a you know, on a Facebook private group, which is what the class decided was going to be their way of communicating outside of class. We don't necessarily do it if we're not accountable. Um, So I used a lot of tools. There's a lot of research I brought into the class, but it turned out that the things that helped the most students the most, that most students said, this had the biggest impact on my life, are probably things you've already heard about. So it's not going to be super original, but it might be interesting that I had this long list of things And there were two things that had the strongest effect on the majority of students. And then there were like nine or 10 things where, you know, some students got a lot out of it, but the rest didn't, or, you know, there there was was a lot of variance on on the margin. But these two things, almost all the students had at least one of these two things in their top three favorite tools at the end of the term. So one of them is going to sound really obvious, and that's making a commitment every day to spend a chunk of time doing something 
that makes you happy and is good for you in the long run. So I had undergraduates, they might enjoy drinking. That doesn't tend to make, going out drinking with friends doesn't necessarily make them happy the next day. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe going for a long hike does, or, you know, spending some time with someone they haven't made time for who who generally is a good friend, that might make them happy. Or spending time outdoors with a pet or with a friend or even by themselves listening to music or audio book, that does. And so they all got to pick what's something that you don't do every day currently that makes you happy and is good for you. And what are you going to commit to doing? And you have to commit every day for a week and you can change it. So maybe you'll commit, oh, today I'm going to go for a walk, but then it pours rain. So you say, oh, today I'm going to do yoga in my bedroom. And just by committing to do it. And then I think what was interesting is part of it was committing to do it, which made them do it. And the second thing is I think everyone got a kick out of, because it wasn't just me, great. I graded the homework, but everyone got to see everyone's posts. We shared it. I'm not crazy about Facebook these days, but we did use a private Facebook group. So everyone would share their homework on the Facebook group. So all the other students could see it as well. And it was just enjoyable to see the wide range of things students were doing for their happy self-care assignment. And people got ideas from each other. Like someone would say, hey, I just got some friends together and we had a dance party outside. And someone would, oh, that's a really good idea. I went for a walk with my mom. Of course, I never walk with my mom. I'm going to go for a walk with my mom. And so there was a combination of enjoying doing it, enjoying Mm -hmm. sharing about it, and enjoying reading everyone else's thing they did to be happy and giving them a high five or a thumbs up or a smiley face or whatever it was uh, for for their accomplishment. The other thing, which I'm sure you've heard of, and if not, most people listening have heard of, is making a gratitude list and something I added is sharing it with others. So three things you're grateful for every day. And I tweaked it that, first of all, you could only carry over one thing from day to day. So you can't every single day for a week say, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my friends. I'm grateful for my health. You had to say the second day you could keep one of those three. You had to have two more. And the other thing I said is at least one of those things has to be small. So your family, your friends, and your health are big. Something small, like I'm grateful for peaches. I love peaches. Or I love, you know, anything. My mother, my mother's um, meatloaf. Or I love, my mother doesn't make meatloaf. We don't eat meat. But, you know, whatever, someone else said that. Um, But people had really small things. Sometimes it was a food, make me smile. And people were sharing about small things that generally make them happy, but they don't take the time to focus on it. And Mm -hmm. by being forced to come up with three things and share them, it forces you to focus on three things you can be grateful for. And that makes you more grateful and more happy. If I asked you to share three things you're miserable about, that might be easy to do, but that would make you more miserable. Mm -hmm. And the truth is we all have things in our life we can be grateful for and all have things in our life that we could wish were not there or wish were better. And just by getting them to focus on the free good things and share it with others, which they did as part of the homework in the Facebook group, and read each other's shares, that also made them happier. Those were the two favorites. And those are usually the two things every happiness course will cover early on, because there's so much research showing that it works on a very large scale, across many populations, across many cultures, regardless of gender, gender orientation, ethnicity, et cetera. So those are, I guess, three things. Commit to something that's good for you that also makes you happy in the moment that you're doing it. Have a gratitude list and share it with others and have people that make you accountable to share that 
because the actual act of sharing it doesn't just increase the chance you'll do it. I think it adds a layer of joy to the act of doing things that are good for you that make you happy. Oh, wow. So those Thank are my you. secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing this. I, I do want to kind of follow up because I feel like as you're talking this, I think one kind of recurring theme that keeps coming back is this like sharing this act. So I wonder just if you can say a little bit more about like what exactly is kind of driving sharing to be such a, I don't know, like a great way to improve happiness. Like what's special about sharing? And another question that I have is probably kind of following up on this is does the format of sharing matter? Because I, I I know you mentioned that it's um it's on Facebook, which I think for especially these days, there have been a lot of like investigations. And right, right. We're not course. crazy about them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a lot of people are kind of slightly concerned about like sharing on social media might can like potentially backfire on people's right, happiness right. level. So I wonder if you can share more, share more, well, sharing. Yeah. Share more <laughs> about like how like different formats of sharing might have a, like, a, will there have a different impact on happiness level? Yeah, absolutely. So we did also share during class. So I didn't cold call people, but I'd ask for volunteers. And inevitably, most people did share some. And some people shared regularly, and they were the stars of the class. Um, And I mean, I will say something that did surprise me in the class. I had a few students write me early on before the class started saying they have anxiety issues and depression issues, and they're under treatment, they're seeing a doctor, and they're already anxious about the class. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so hard. You know, what am I going to do with all these students? And so I said, well, whatever you're doing, if you're on medication, keep your medication. If you're seeing a therapist, see a therapist. This is not a cure. This is not instead of what you're doing. And they're like, no, I understand. I'm very anxious. Those students were spectacular in the class. The students who came in, because early, the first day I asked them, zero to 10, how are you doing confidentially? They didn't have to share that with the class. The students with the low numbers excelled in this class because they were so motivated. So that's kind of a side note about sharing. The students who shared the most were the ones who got the most out of the class. And they were the ones on average, with exception, I had some happy students at the beginning who stayed happy and shared. On average, they were the ones who contributed the most and got the most out of the class, which was great for me because I was worried, well, I can't help the ones who are really suffering. But I did. I think not me personally, but the content of the class and the class itself, the community helped them. So back to your sharing thing. There's no question that human connection driving well-being and happiness. Tons of research has shown that. I wish I discovered it myself, but I just have discovered it after many others have discovered it. And a lot of the sharing that I thought was very powerful was in person when students would share and you'd even see in the chat as well as out loud, wow, David or Michael or whatever. There was no David or Michael. So this is really, (laughs) the names have been changed. Um, I really, really appreciated what you shared. Oh, Diana, that was a beautiful share. And I really got a lot out of it. You were really brave to share that. There is a sense of connection, which I think we all need more of, and which a lot of people have been lacking enough of because of COVID, right? We're not seeing each other back then, especially, but even now we're not seeing each other the same way we used to. We don't go to movies. We have to wear masks all the time when we're indoors. We're still a little bit, we're limited in terms of what we can do. It's certainly better than it was a year ago. Um, So I think the ideal would be sharing in person, but I didn't have that option because that just wasn't an option for a fully online class. Um, I think the second best was sharing 
you know, cameras on and listening in real time. And the third best was sharing in the post. It doesn't have to be Facebook. It can be email. Of course, for some of us, that's Google and you might have issues with that. I don't know. But, you know, it could be email. It could be a phone call that you call each other every day and leave a voicemail. But, you know, I do think in person is the most powerful. I do think in real time online is the second most. And I do think in some sort of written format that definitely doesn't have to be Facebook. You could have a Google Doc or you could just, and there's so many ways, right? Even if it's not the ideal optimal modality of sharing, just being connected with people on something personal makes us feel less alone. And so I think, you know, as a teacher, you, you can't, you know, you're not together 24 hours, you're either together in person or online, or maybe you have an asynchronous format as well. But whatever modality, I think sharing is better than not sharing. And of course, I think that your intuition is right, that in-person is more powerful. And you have to pick the method that works for you. So if you're anti-Facebook, which could be quite legitimate, actually, mm -hmm. um, then you pick some other thing. Um, but I, I'll be honest with you, I have a accountability buddy in London that I've never met. There was an online course that I was, it wasn't really a course, it was just a lecture. And I posted, I needed a happiness accountability buddy. It was before I started teaching my class. And all these people answered me that had so much in common with me. They had PhDs. Three of them lived in the Bay Area. They were my age, almost exactly like a year older, a year younger. And then one person wrote me, she's half my age. She lives in London and she works in fashion. And I totally don't care about fashion. London is a different time zone and she's half my age. And we started being accountability buddies in November of last year. So we're almost at a year. And every day we share what we're doing for self-care and a gratitude list at least five days a week. Like sometimes we falter for a couple of days and it's super powerful. And it turns out even someone I don't have that much in common with on paper, I really enjoy hearing her share and she likes to hear my share. And it's kind of magical that the human desire for more happiness and more gratitude and more self-care is just, regardless of your age or your profession or your background, um, her and I do have some things in common, it turns out quite a bit, but mm -hmm. you don't have to find someone who's like you on the outside to be able to gain something from sharing your experience doing things that make you happier. And that's something I learned not in the class, but from her, but that sort of helped me teach the class as well, I think. I see. One thing that I was kind of wondering about in terms of this like accountability buddy idea is that on the one hand, I feel like that sounds like a really, really great idea. Like I feel like sometimes if I do not have someone that I can kind of like report to, right. like the progress is just going to be slow. But on the other hand, it seems to me to be a very interesting dilemma that, well, happiness is a, like a kind of a like a goal that everybody will have. But then like there seems to be some kind of reluctance or challenges to actually pursuing the goal. And so that that's kind of like why people need accountability buddies. So I wonder if you can say something about why, like sometimes even if we know what will make us happy, it's still very difficult to follow down that path. I think there, no matter how much happiness, well-being list serves you're on and books you buy and <laughs> mm -hmm. lectures you go to and, and articles you read, we have so many things that we are supposed to be doing that don't necessarily make us happier. There's so, I mean, if you work and if you're a student and if you're a grad student or any kind of student, 
you have homework, you should be working on your paper, you should be, there's all this stuff that you could, there's a ton of email in your inbox. I know I have way too much of it. And you're, you know, you don't know which to respond to. And you just have all these things you said you would do. And there's all these Zoom meetings and these, for the students, there's team projects. For, for academics, there's papers they know they should finish and they should deal with the reviewer comments. But God knows it's not always fun to deal with reviewer comments mm-hmm. or revise the, the article for a new journal that wants something else. It, so there's all these things we kind of have to do and we should do and we do need to do them. And so often we will say, I just don't have time today. I don't have time to go for a walk today. I don't have time to go to the gym. I don't have time for a gratitude list. The truth is my life sucks and I have nothing to be grateful for. And you can, a lot of people can say that very easily unless there's somebody who's waiting for their gratitude list or waiting to hear, what did you do today for self-care? And I think that makes it, you know, that we have our to-do list, whether we have it written down or in our head or in our inbox or however. Probably if you thought hard, you could come up with five things you need to do in the next day or two. And so could I. Maybe most of those things aren't going to make us very happy. And we feel a lot of pressure to do them, especially if you're an academic, right? I mean, you're a graduate student at Stanford. So my guess is you didn't get into a graduate program in Stanford by being someone who doesn't do things that you should do. Lots of them, right? Lots Mm -hmm. of things that you need to do. You're a hardworking person. You wouldn't be where you are otherwise. You shouldn't abandon all that and just have fun 24-7 because that could long-term hurt your goals. But but I think having an accountability buddy moves it up on the to-do list, whether it's a physical to-do list you wrote down or a mental to-do list that you have carrying with you in regards to, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, oh my God, I've got to do this, I have to research this, oh my God, I need a new dentist, I'm going to have to look up the reviews of all the dentists and make sure my dentist is in network for my insurance. And oh my gosh, I need to also make sure that my dentist, you know, all this does my dentist natural, what kind of this do they use? Oh, I also want to make sure they're close enough to my house. I don't have to spend a lot of time away from my work to get to the dentist. Is there parking near the dentist? You could spend hours just making an appointment to go to the dentist, not little, I'm getting to the dentist. And instead you can say, well, I'm not going to research this to death because I have to go for my walk and write my gratitude list. I'm accountable. And so I think it moves it up Mm -hmm. on the to-do list. We all know we should, but you get a lot more pressure from external forces to do mm-hmm. the things you need to do than to do the things that are fun, right? I'm sure you've got people reminding you that you should work on your papers and work on your, you know, <laughs> yes. prepare for your classes and do your readings and enough people remind you of that. And sometimes you need someone who's going to remind you, you need to go do yoga or you need to go for a walk with me or you need to whatever it is, brush your cat if that makes you happy. Um, mine is begging for that right now. So I don't really know if I'm going to have a choice pretty soon. But, um, but you know, whatever it is that makes you happy to move it up on the to-do list, you have this person who's going to check in or check or know that you did or didn't do it. And the other thing that's very powerful, and I neglected to say, is both in class and online and with my own accountability buddy, it's also helpful to have them when we don't do it. Because if you call and say, you know, I just didn't do a gratitude list today and I feel bad about it, or I didn't go for a walk today and, you know, I'm finding it hard to fall asleep. Usually I fall right asleep. Or I didn't go for a walk today and, you know, I'm just not focusing as much on my work. And and so you sort of report to yourself and to them that there's not just a benefit to doing the things that make us happier. There's also a very high cost to not doing it. And I think 
you know, losses loom larger than gains. Uh, most psychology students and faculty know this quite well. Um, prospect theory, 1979, Karnan and Um, But if we focus also not just on what we gain by doing the things that make us happier, but what we lose by not doing the things that make us happier, when we focus on both, it both of those reinforce, okay, I need to be doing this every day. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that was one exercise I had the students do. They had to think about the cost of not continuing to take care of themselves in the ways that they had identified were most effective for their happiness and well-being. They said, well, if I continue to do this, I will continue to be much happier as I have been the last month. And they also had to write at the end, if I don't do it, and, and a lot of them wrote, I think I'll get depressed again. And I think I'll be depressed more often. And I think my anxiety will be higher than it was this month when it was lower than it was the previous month. And so that reflection on both the benefits of doing things for ourselves and the cost of not doing it, I think is very powerful. And I'll say one more thing, which is not me. Uh, it's quite a few other researchers. But the research shows that it's not that success makes you happier. I mean, that's true, at least in the short run. But it's also true that happier people are more successful. If you're taking care of your physical and mental self to take care of your own well-being, you will be a better writer. You will be a better student. You will be a better teacher. You will be a better parent. You will be a better romantic partner or spouse or whatever it is, a better daughter or son. Um, and, and so a better pet parent. So if you're taking care of yourself and you're happier and you're more relaxed, your work is also better. Your performance is better. You're more interesting to others. Uh, you're more pleasant. You're more appealing. You're better looking, maybe even, or at least more attractive <laughs> as a person, not necessarily physically. But people, you know, people would like to spend time with people who are happy and relaxed. They don't necessarily enjoy spending time as much with people when they're angry, sad, stressed, anxious. This is not so fun. And so, you know, this reminder that it's not choosing between your success and your happiness, but that your happiness and your well-being actually support your success, whether you're a doctoral student at Stanford or something else. They support your success in other domains. And by sharing it with someone else, you start to notice that. You start to notice, I wasn't as good when I taught today. I was unable to do this review today. I was just too tired. I also didn't take care of myself today. I don't think those are two independent facts. I think if I'd taken better care of myself, probably would have taught a better class, probably would be able to focus and write this review for this article, for this journal that's due next week. And, and, and that realization and documenting it, either in a journal, if you don't have an accountability buddy, a journal can be your accountability buddy, or with others, I think reinforces that this is really a good investment in your life, not just in your happiness, in, in your even in your success. The research shows happiness brings success. Oh, wait, so, that, that's really interesting. Because can you say more about like, how did they kind of make the causal claims? It's like... Oh, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that. if like they correlate with each other, but it also seems to be plausible that like more successful people just are like, they are happier because they're more successful. So, so I'm sure the loop feeds in, but you read lots of stories. So I'm not remembering the specific studies, I will confess. I'm not remembering them specifically, but, but I do remember I read it and I was persuaded, but, but exact logistics of it, I would have to get back to you. Um, mm-hmm. But what I do, what I can say is that you know, there's plenty of stories, and this is anecdotal, this is not, you know, big research study, um, but there's plenty of stories of people who've reached fame, fortune, and success, and they are very depressed. Um, There are suicides. In fact, in one year, I think we had 
multiple famous successful people commit suicide, which is the ultimate, right? The ultimate horror that you, you don't want any anyone you know to, to, to go there. Um, but there are people who have been rich and famous and had a great career and they're good looking and they have a really wonderful spouse that they love who loves them and they have children who love them and are successful and they are still severely depressed. Maybe not suicidal, but I just remember, uh, you know, the guy who had the travel show on CNN, Kate Spade, um, quite a few comedians have overdosed. I mean, there's a large list of comedians who've overdosed on drugs, who suffered for depression. And they weren't just comedians. They were superstars. SNL has lost multiple um, wonderful top of the line, top most popular, you know, Saturday Night Live comedians who were had movie careers and were really successful and had huge fan bases. And they overdosed and they were suffering from, they reported suffering from depression. It wasn't necessarily suicide, but they reported depression and they reported anxiety. And so I think, you know, success without taking care of yourself isn't worth very much. We think it is. We were definitely sold that story in, in our culture. Um, but there's plenty of, you know, stories where, and I have all these little video vignettes I show in the class from various documentaries. There's quite a few of them on Netflix and you can buy them here and there. Um, so I showed just little clips. I didn't show whole documentaries, but little clips of stories of people who, you know, had been in an accident and lost their vision or been in an accident. It was a woman who had been a beauty queen, literally, and she was in an accident. Her face was just permanently damaged and she had nerve damage and she did not look like a beauty queen anymore. As an understatement, she was noticeably different looking from most women or most men, even her face was not symmetrical at all. And she went through a hard period and she was very happy. She found the love of her life. And she said, the truth is I'm happier now because I forced myself to learn things that really matter. And it's not being the prettiest girl in school or the most, you know, the most anything. It's really having love and doing, spending time with people you love and doing things to help others. She works in some sort of, I think she's a massage therapist or a physical therapist, but she works helping others. And, you know, you sort of hear her story and granted that's not an empirical study. But, but you see this thing that it's not about success. And, and what is success? I mean, that's the other thing. If you're rich and famous and you're miserable and you're using drugs to get through the day and you wish you were dead, you're not really that successful. And if you're middle class and you have a loving life, be it a family or friends or community, and you like what you do and people value you and you make a contribution that matters, that's success. And those people don't tend to overdose <laughs> with, with or without being on the cover of major magazines and having a million Instagram followers, um, which doesn't lead to happiness by itself. Either. I see. So what I'm hearing here right now seems to be like happiness is such an important kind of component to or even necessary preconditions to having a successful life. However, for some reason, it's just not on a lot of people's like top priority. So this seems to me, it sounds like a really, really weird paradox. And I wonder if you have any like speculations on why this is the case. Like, is it because of the school, like the education system never really kind of ask the kids to make themselves feel happier? Or is it because of like the society in general has like kind of prioritized anything else other than happiness? That's such a good question. And I'm going to give multiple answers. So A, I do think it varies from culture to culture. And we see that, right? 
There are certain countries where teen suicide is very high, and those are often the cultures where the students are under the most pressure from their family and their peers and their entire country to perform stellarly academically, right? So, you know, and or to work extremely hard. So we sort of think of the case study of Japan of young people literally dying of overwork. And we're not talking physical work in the fields, you know, we're talking, you know, working in an office and, and, and working so hard. And it's not just in Japan, it can happen anywhere. It's just kind of high levels in Japan. And I think South Korea, the people are working so many strong hours, they're coming home very late, they're exhausted, they don't really have time for their family. Um, and so there's more of them, not all of them, there are a lot of very happy <laughs> Japanese and South Koreans, definitely, definitely, I know some of them, and they're very happy, but, but it's a higher stress environment. So I think a culture plays a role. And then I'll say something else that's promising. Lot, I'm reading a lot, it's not necessarily academic research, but I'm reading it like in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Because the pandemic had such an effect on so many people's happiness and well-being, a negative effect for the most part, not for everyone, but for many, it also caused a lot more people to say, wait a minute, this is a priority for me. My happiness and well-being is a priority because I need it to function in the world. I need it to take care of the people I love. And I need it to do my job because I, you could get so unhappy that you just aren't functioning even in, in your professional life or your personal life or your you know, parenting life or partner life. And so, or as a friend, you're not available because you're too down and worried about your own self. So, so I think there has been a recent, like in the last, I'll say in the last five years, but particularly since the pandemic, even more recently, there's been a huge demand for happiness and well-being content. I'm seeing it all over the place. And no matter where it is, and no matter how many competitors there are, it fills, right? So it's not like it's not like there's one person who's successfully talking about this and nobody's listening to anyone else. There's so much demand, and there's a supply of content you can get, which is great. Books, lots of books on happiness, lots of researchers are now studying it, lots of universities are teaching it, which I'm thrilled because I like to be part of that, that movement. And so I think in the last year or two, more and more people are making it a priority. And you're even reading, I mean, not that quitting your job necessarily leads to happiness, but I, I just read this week in the Wall Street Journal, the more people quit their job in the year, last year and a half than in any year in the past 20 years, something like that. And that's not because they're quitting their job randomly. Part of it is they had this realization that they want to have a more fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe quitting your job is not the smartest way to get about that, especially if you don't know what you're going to do to pay your bills after that. But, um, but, you know, doing a career change is on the rise. And a lot of people are taking more time to learn about happiness, to sign up for a class, be it online or in person or at a university or off, you know, off the academic chart, or read articles or get on a blog or there are lots of happiness podcasts, and there's videos that people are posting constantly, um, a lot of groups that regularly post stuff. I think Stanford has the happiness habits, BJ Fogg is there. And his work is certainly uh, had a huge effect on many people. I actually assigned some of his stuff in my own class. So that, you know, you're at Stanford. So you've got BJ Fogg as part of the, the world that, that can, you know, is way beyond academia. He's a lot of people read his stuff that are not academic. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think the demand is up. So it's true. Maybe we don't prioritize it enough. But I think in 2021, more people are prioritizing happiness and well-being than were in 2019. And I think in part, it's because the pandemic 
shook people and they realized I need to be able to be happy, even to be more resilient, right? To be happy, even when the weather is bad, even when I can't go with my friend to a restaurant, even when the gyms Mm -hmm. are closed and the swimming pool is closed and I don't have a yoga class and I can't go, you know, go do a family dinner or fly to Hawaii and just go dancing at a club, you know, all these things we suddenly couldn't do, which may or may not be on your happiness list, but almost everyone lost a source of happiness due to the pandemic. Almost everybody had something they loved doing that they could not do after the lockdown. And I think it made a lot of people search really hard. What do I do to be happy and well when all this stuff was taken away? How do I create a life where when things are hard, I can still cope, not necessarily be jubilant, but at least cope. Because I think a lot of people got to the point that it's not just that they weren't super happy, they didn't feel that they were coping. And and, and it was a large percentage of people that were struggling, possibly for the first time or more than they had for many, many years, because so many things had been, so many sources of happiness and well-being were basically shut Mm -hmm. um, or forbidden or just not even available at all. Like it wasn't, wasn't an option anymore. And so I think you're right. We don't prioritize it enough. I think that's still true today. But I think the trend, which makes me very optimistic, is that more people are prioritizing it. And I will just tell you, the first time I taught the class, it filled. The second time I taught the class, it also filled with more students. The third time I taught the class, I had an enormous wait list, like four times bigger than the size of the class. We opened two sections for a mini class because I didn't get approved for another full class, even though I offered to teach it. And those two filled. And the wait list, I wrote everyone on the wait list and said, We're, unfortunately, I did not get approved to teach a second section. I'd like to. I'll teach it in the summer. There's really no point on staying on the wait list. There's like a one out of a thousand chance. And they're still on the wait list. They wrote me, so I get to stay on the wait list just in case. And, you know, that to me is not just the word of mouth was positive. I think students enjoyed the material. And so, yeah, I think that was true. But I think part of it is more and more students and more and more non-students and faculty and and, and non-academics are saying, I want to learn more about how to be happy and how to maximize my well-being. Because, I mean, I, as someone with a PhD and two master's degrees, knew lots of stuff I never used. And this stuff is useful. I mean, this stuff you can use, you know, you can use it this week. And you can use it when you're a grandmother and you can use it, you know, it's going to be relevant for the rest of your life. I think of the things I learned, you know, in high school and pre-high school and even in grad school, some of it is wonderful and I'm grateful and I learned it and I used it and some of it I don't use. But the happiness stuff, you can use it every day, regardless of whether you're going to be a professor of psychology or a dentist or, you know, a homemaker, you know, a full-time mom. It's just so useful and more and more people are saying, I want that. Um, so I think that's the good news. The bad news is I don't think that we were, we're where we should be, but the good news is I think we're moving towards more and more cultures. I think around the world, by the way, not just in the US. It's not just in the US, it's a big movement in the UK, in Australia, in New Zealand, it, it, all over Europe. Southeast Asia, for sure, it's increasing awareness for well-being and happiness. So it's kind of Latin America, I think they were generally 
big on happiness anyway, but they're also, they're also interested in this stuff. And I'll go to, I'll go to courses taught by other people that are taught online. And you look and oftentimes the instructor will say, let me know where in the world you're from. And you see, Af- by the way, Africa too. I neglected Africa, but you see, I am from Nigeria. I am from Ecuador. I am from, and you see every, I'm from France. I'm from Israel. I'm from Iran. I'm from Egypt, like all over the Middle East too, like all over and they're all connecting to say, we want more happiness and well-being. And by the way, what a lovely thing to bring people from all over the world to realize we all have some things in common. And whether you're a Palestinian in Gaza or, you know, a Jewish Israeli living in Tel Aviv, which I've seen both in my groups. And I, by the way, I've had both in my, well, I'm Israeli and I've had Palestinian students in my classes. We have so much in common. And when we realize that, okay, this is probably too too pie in the sky, but when we realize that we all want to be happier and more well, we realize the differences between us are not so big, and we have a lot more in common as human beings, regardless of where we're from and what our age or gender or orientation is. And and I think um, you know more and more across the board, I'm seeing increased demand for this. And again, globally, not just in the U.S. Well, that does kind of give me some really optimistic feelings. Almost like there's this kind of <laughs> global societal trend towards like actually figuring out what matters the most in life. So um, yeah, so I, I want to be mindful of time, but I do want to kind of wrap up the conversation more kind of future, like forward looking. So I wonder if you can share um, something about what's your thoughts on the future of this class that you're so passionate about. So what's your long-term vision for the class? Do you plan to teach it more like in person and or maybe like create some platforms online so that more people who are not necessarily in the institute you are at can access? Yes, 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 and yes. So (laughs) I literally have a draft to the president of my university uh, because today he spoke on happiness and well-being should be the the well-being. Now, he didn't say happiness. The well-being of our students should be a priority. So I'm like, you should open sections. Help me open sections. I want to teach more sections. So I am teaching it. I'm very grateful that I get to teach it. But I'd like to make it available so there are no wait lists so that every, you know, as, as long as I have the time to teach it that I'm able to teach as many students as possible. That's on my campus, but I don't think it should be just, I mean, first of all, it's not the only campus teaching happiness and well-being. I didn't invent it. So I've got to acknowledge that I have friends and colleagues, many of them in marketing departments, interestingly enough, that are teaching happiness and well-being, many of them in psychology departments as well. So it's not just me, but I'd like it to teach it to faculty, to staff, to students, grad, undergrad. And I would like to teach it to people who are not affiliated with academia. And I would like to teach it K through 12. And I would like to create courses with the help of developmental psychologists. I know you had Alison Gopnik. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, not, not all by myself, a class that anyone over the, you know, toddlers two to five could learn some basic things. Like once you can talk, you can say three things you're grateful for. And once you can talk, you can say, I'm happy when I dance. I'm going to dance, right? So children sort of naturally do things that make them happy. They have that instinct. We haven't crushed them (laughs) with demands to do, right? And when you're little enough, you don't have that many demands, right? Before you hit first grade, you're just basically playing and going to sleep and eating and going to the bathroom and, you know, not much to do there except have fun and enjoy your life. But I think that, you know, even at a very early age, there should be material that they're exposed to from the minute they can have a conversation and understand what someone's saying 
to the point that they're senior citizens. And I think it would be, uh, my parents are in their 80s. So I think it would be great to go into a retirement community and teach this stuff because uh, they don't all know it. And aging is difficult. It's a challenge. It comes with new challenges. And you lose a lot of people. And in, in your near 80s, a lot of your friends end up passing away. And so I think in our whole life, regardless of where we are, there's value in these tools, not just to undergraduates or even just to students or even just to people in academia. And I would love to just be doing this <laughs> to everyone all the time, which sounds kind of crazy. But um, so obviously I can't do everyone all the time, but there's lots of other people doing it. So I certainly I'm not I, I do want to be fair and say I didn't invent teaching this class. Um, I'm not the only one doing it. And I wasn't even the first. Uh, but I have found it to be so rewarding personally. Finally, a class where I even like the grading. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, finally. And just, you know, students write me a month later and, they you know, they're, they're never going to see me again. The grades are in. And they say, wow, I just want you to know this class really did a lot for me. Um, one student wrote me she had really been struggling with some personal medical stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, that's all I need to say. But she'd been struggling with it. And she wrote me, and I've seen her since, and she's doing amazing, right? Like, she's a superstar. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, I was struggling, but and it's not like every, it's not like all the pain is over. It's not like they're not ever sad or anxious after my class. I don't prevent unhappiness or cure all unhappiness and make them constantly happy and well forevermore. But, you know, the students who worked the hardest and committed the hardest to keep applying it they're the ones who are getting the most out of it and they're letting me know that. And to me, that makes me want to teach this as much as possible. And of course, I still am teaching my other classes, but if it was up to me, it's not really a secret because it's a podcast. If it was up to me, this is what I would be doing all the time. Like this would be it. This would be what I would teach. And, um, and so I'm hoping that there will be a, a realization across universities and even at workplaces, right? Employer, Happiness and well-being is another big trend. I'm hoping that there'll be a demand everywhere so that corporations get this material to their employees and, you know, the military gives it to their soldiers and nurses and doctors who God knows need it maybe more than any of us right now get as much of this as possible and get time, release time, paid time to take care of their happiness and well-being because it'll make them better doctors, plus they deserve it. So my hope is it'll be across the board and any piece of that where I could teach it to any audience, obviously I'd have to tailor it a little for maybe even a lot for certain audiences, but any opportunity to do it, I'm super excited. So if anyone's listening and they want someone to come teach, <laughs> teach a mini class or a large class, I am so hungry to do it that I, I even if I didn't have time, I would make time because it's, it's really, honestly, it's addictive in a good way. So Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. I definitely look forward to the days where like from zero to 99, everybody yeah. can know like the science behind how to live a happier life. Thank you so much.